if Gillan McLaughlin stands down at the end of next year, which is what we all think, it is going to be fascinating to see what happens. The opening chapter is the stoning of a Christian woman. You know, he who cast the first stone, and boy, do they cast stones. It's bloody, it's gory, it's really confronting. Now that she's got you to get rid of all those things that don't spark joy, she's going to sell you her own things. Marie Kondo, con. I'll leave it at that. Frizzled chickpeas and onion with feta and oregano. Don't you love the word frizzled? And grizzled? I've never frizzled, heard grizzled. frizzled. And I think Mr Mackenzie deserves a medal for actually going up and telling these people, do you realise that there are older people in this supermarket who are quite terrified by what you're doing? Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Welcome, everybody, to episode 110 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. Summer is in the air, and I'm here with my, looking very summery today, my dear friend Corrie Perkin. Hello, Caro. Hello, Miss Jane. Hello, Potties. What a beautiful weekend of weather we've had in Melbourne. And um, you've, well, you've been in regional Victoria, Corrie. You are heading towards summer insanity with um, the bookshop because people are starting to buy books for Christmas presents. And um, I know this is a particularly busy time of year for you. It is, but we did escape on the weekend to lovely Ballarat and went to the Spring Festival yesterday, which Miss Jane knows very well as a Ballarat resident, don't you, Janie? Absolutely. It's Springfest Market, the entire Lake Wendery, you know, market stalls, lots of local um, storeholders. It's usually rained out, blown out or frozen out. And yesterday was peak Ballarat weather where everyone goes, oh, I love this place. It was just beautiful. (laughs) So you just walk around the whole lake, Caro, and they're all the stalls the handcraft stalls and the honey maker and all of these sorts of produce and everything, they just around the around the perimeter of the lake. It was fantastic. I love a round market. The week before, Clem and I went to the Bonio market, and that's around a big football oval. Same yes. thing. Not, you not just as go not, around. Not as nice <laughs> as Lake Windery. And then you go, oh, we're back again. Now, we've got a bumper episode for you today, Corrie, and for everybody else. Um, there's not that far from Ballarat in the beautiful little Victorian town of Woodend. There's been some pretty horrible things going on. Life is imitating art in the most bizarre way with Prince Andrew and the Crown. We're going to talk about that. My November challenge is rocketing. I've seen yet another movie, Corrie, and... There's some, well, there's some interesting politics going on at AFLHQ. So, and we've got our challenges to talk about. I want to say hello to Mary Brunston, who emailed us last week at our feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. She wanted to hear more about Corrie, your recipe last week. She's, um, was walking along the beach at Cottesloe in Perth and she heard your recent recipe for the cake with the blood plum sauce. She thinks it was a chocolate cake. She wants to try it. So, um, Corrie, where did she find that? In our show notes? It is in our show notes. So, Mary, if you just click on Don't Shoot the Messenger, Miss Jane last week put the recipe up. The reason I didn't go through the whole procedure is uh, it's not fiddly. I'm stressing it's a very easy cake, but there are quite a few steps and that would have taken up a lot of time. So it's all there, ready to rock and roll. Or you could buy the book Feasting from which this recipe comes by Amanda Rubin and it is available at all good bookstores. I think it came out maybe two years ago. 
So, uh, yeah, you can do that as well. And thank you to our dear longtime friend, Linda Danvers, who got in touch via Instagram. Loved hearing about Gary's book about William Buckley, Gary Linnell, who was our guest in Ep 109. Sadly, she won't be coming to our Christmas podcast because she'll be in London. Oh, well, that's a pretty oh. good excuse, Linda. And someone but, else said on, on our Instagram account, Cara, a couple of weeks ago, they'd love to come, but they have tickets, I think, to Elton John. Oh. Who, oh. Where would you rather say <laughs> Elton Corrie and Caro. Um, yeah, they're tough choice. Now, we are having our Christmas podcast, as you've heard. Um, there are some tickets still available. The rooftop at Bell's in South Melbourne, Bell's Hotel, is where it's being held. It's on 6.30pm on Tuesday, December the 10th, 6.30 to 8.30. Email Tara, T-A-R-A, via events at crocmedia.com or phone double eight two five double six. Oh five. Caro, do you three know, in front of that. Did you know we're up to the ton? In fact, we're we're over a hundred people we're, coming. We're David Warner. We've we've cracked the ton quite a while ago. I'm so very excited. We're very we're very happy about that. Details are in our show notes and on our Facebook page. So please come along. We'd love to see you. We're going to do a Q and A with our audience too. You don't have to ask a question, but. Um, there will be prizes. There will be special guests. Anna from the Op Shop, my mother Julia, Peggy O'Neill, the Richmond president, and a few others. We've got um, Conrad Marshall with his new book about the Tigers' ongoing triumphs. And in the meantime, Corrie, before that, it's we're reaching the end of November. How did your challenge go this week? A disaster. I still can't find the journal. <laughs> <laughs> I know. This is sounding like one of my challenges. Your challenges have been so good. I know. Remember your July, dry July, and about week two, you'd already had a couple of pinots. Oh, okay, week three. Week three. I know, I know, but I can't find it. Well, I moved house, as everybody's heard, ad nauseum. Um, I moved house and I put it in a box and I can't find it. So, look, I have been doing a bit of noting on my phone, but it's not the same. I don't know whether I'm a dear diary kind of person. I no, know. I don't think I don't think you've putting notes say, on your phone. No, I have to accounts. <laughs> yeah, well, they won't be able to find that in a hundred years' time when I'm famous, and they decide to let's do a biography of that well-known Australian woman, Corrie Perkins. Cor- well, you, Where, where's her journal? Oh, well, funny you, about that. Were you inspired by the Helen Garner book, the one I you was talked bit, about? Yeah, I was, but yeah. also as I said at the time, Caro, I I have so well, I think they're hilarious ideas. <laughs> During the week, I constantly laugh at my own jokes, but I, I, I just often I'll have a funny thought or something will come up in the news, something serious, and I'll think that's a really good idea for the podcast. Or as you know, I'm now doing a personal column in the domain section of the age, and or the review, I should say. And uh, so I have these thoughts, and I and I forget them when the time comes to write, or I come in here and see you. Brain dead. Yeah, so, no, well, that, that, yeah, that. so, you know, look, I don't know. Oh, on, to, on to December, I say. Now, what about you and your challenge? Well, my challenge was, let's face as someone said pretty to me easy. the other day, it's a pretty easy challenge. Well, but, Gary Linnell last week couldn't stop laughing when, he, when you said your challenge. My He's going challenge, to see movies. Nothing's changed. My challenge was to go and see as many movies possible as possible from the British Film Festival. And actually, it's not... It's a fun challenge. I acknowledge that. But it is, you know, you always say you're going to go to all the films at Melbourne International Film Festival or Italian Film Festival, and I end up going to about one from each. So I have stuck to this challenge, and I have embraced it with relish. My um, latest two were on Sunday night. I did a double feature. I met Anna from the op shop at about 3.30, and we saw Hope Gap, which is a very bleak 
but beautifully acted and heart-wrenching story I, of a I, marriage breakup. I, yeah, who's in it again? Bill Nye and That's Annette right. Benning. That's right. And the son, it's a pretty much a three-hander with a few other people. But as Anna from the Op Shop said about a lot of the films we've seen, why don't people in these films ever have any friends? <laughs> and it's true. Even Official Secrets, which, you know, has been showed to great acclaim, the first, one of the first ones we saw. Anyway, um, the son is the same guy who plays uh, Prince Charles in The Crown in the mm. new series, and he's brilliant as well. It's beautifully filmed. It's brilliantly acted. The script is sublime. And we love Bill Nye. And we both walked out feeling, you're not loving him in this, I'm oh, telling really? you. Anyway, I mean, well acted. Um, but then um, was the opening at 6 p.m., I said goodbye to Anna from the op shop. She went off to meet her husband, Chris, at another movie elsewhere. We did um, The Good Liar, which is going to be – it'll be a hit of the summer. Mm. Ian McClellan Helen and Helen Mirren. Oh, my God. What I've a seen story. the shorts, but for bodies who haven't, give them a brief synop. Two old elderly people meet via a dating site, and it is obvious from the beginning – that he is not what he seems. He is not what he seems. And yeah, that's pretty obvious from the very beginning. There are twists, there are turns. The acting is unbelievable. It's quite, um, it's quite scary, quite haunting. Four of us went and they, they, we went to the Como Cinema and it was on at about four different cinemas and it was packed. It was absolutely packed. And six o'clock, end of a beautiful day, you know, you, everywhere you turned was another sort of friend. We all, we all absolutely loved it. Um, the comment from my mother at the end, well, that was a woman's film in, oh, terms, of, in terms of the themes. But it's got, it's got a bit of history and uh, anyway, it's really, really good. Yes, so, well, it's, I, I'm, in, I'm itching to ask you more, but I don't want you to give anything oh, Well, away. I don't want to say too much more, but I will say this. The segue into what we're about to discuss has some relevance, oh, okay. and that's a return of Nazi symbols. Um, this horrible event that happened in Woodend in Victoria over the weekend. Well, it happened a couple of weeks ago, Caro. Well, but it was the, exposed yeah, on the yeah, weekend. Yeah, that's right. Sorry. And the witnesses come forward on the weekend and the age broke the story. It's pretty terrifying. So for those who missed the story, uh, a couple of weeks ago, four young people dressed in Nazi uniforms, complete with swastika and so on, entered the Coles at Woodend, which is a really lovely, um, well, I suppose we call it a regional town. It sometimes feels a bit like an outer suburb of Melbourne, but it's a beautiful town. And they paraded around, uh, not particularly aggressively or anything like that. There is a, there is a feeling uh, once the investigation occurred that they were not doing this in a menacing way. They were going to a party and this was their dress up. Mm. But one person, the person who who broke this story, who's the witness, uh, Mr. McKenzie, said to them, look, some of the other shoppers are actually, um, quite intimidated, uh, and really, out of respect for the Holocaust and so on, I don't think it's appropriate that you should be wearing this outfit. And the four people were very dismissive. They told him to F off. Well, they were abusive. That sort of thing. Yeah. So there was a bit of a, a sort of an, a, an aggressive element to it. Uh, not that I'm suggesting for a second it was right-wing fascism comes to wood end, but it just left everybody feeling a bit perturbed. And there are a couple of things, Cara, that really concern me about this. Uh, the, bigger, the bigger picture thing about this is that uh, as the Holocaust generation are 
moving toward their 90s um, and we're losing that primary evidence, that first connection. We know, of course, that a lot of their families are still alive and, of course, the Jewish community and I think the wider community we will never forget and, and we never should. And I wonder what these young people were actually thinking. Are they taught history at school? Do they understand the significance of this? In Germany... I didn't realise this, Cara, but in Germany it's against the law to show any sort of Nazi symbolism in any way, symbols or certainly High Hitler. It's banned. And in fact, up to three-year prison sentence it carries. So Prince Harry wouldn't have gone down too well a few years ago. Well, wasn't that just a terrible error? And we'll talk about the royal family in a minute, but... Uh, yeah, I just so on that level, I just I just think that we all need to keep this uh, this awareness alive, and it's up to us as the second and third generation after the war to do so. And but the other thing is on a, on a kind of a, a, a micro level, what's ha- what what were those kids thinking, or those those twenty year olds? What were they thinking when they dressed up in that Nazi uniform? Did they have any thought? Were they trying to be provocative? And if they were, why? And what's behind that? And this whole, we know that there's this rise of fascism occurring in, in, in Europe, in parts of Europe, and there's a neo-Nazi movement even in the United States, which, dare I say, their president is not doing a great deal to stamp upon. But it, it's very concerning, I think, that this whole um, anger and anti-Semitism is starting to rise again in ways that people are, are not snuffling out. And I think Mr. McKenzie deserves a medal for actually going up and telling these people, do you realise that there are older people in this supermarket who are quite terrified by what you're doing? It's almost like, um, you know, people, young people wanting, or two wanting to push the envelope. And, um, and you know, cl- I hate to say it, but social media... And you get these young sort of right-wing computer nerds who are pushed and pushed and pushed further to the right by the the insidious stuff that they do and see online. There's a character in the movie I'm going to review in BSF in a moment who is – and it's a spoof and a send-up. It's a bit of a black comedy. But he's this nerdy kid who is referred to as the fascist in the family who spends his entire time on his phone or his computer looking at – fascist sort of websites. Well, it's and, so accessible, isn't it? Yeah. It's it, so accessible. There was a horrible story in The Australian on the weekend. The numbers of, um, this is a complete segue, I know, but um, pedophilia, child sex abuse and child brutality and rape, the numbers, Australia is sort of heading the world in the number of people who are accessing this online stuff. And it's grown and grown and grown. And according to the head of the federal police in Australia, um, the numbers, the kids are getting younger and their violence is becoming worse. And more and more people, I mean, it, it, it's just impossible to wonder. And well, I, well, I as blame, a government, the government should actually be watchdogging this and, and looking at, you know, how do we monitor this? How I completely, mon- completely blame online. But yeah, look, it, it's just extraordinary that anyone would think it was acceptable to walk anywhere in public, little private obviously, wearing Schwartz stickers. The, Jennifer Huppert, who is the president of the Jewish Community Council of Victoria, said there was a lack of understanding about the impact of Nazi memorabilia, costumes and symbols and a growing disconnect, although I do not like that word, but a growing disconnect with the Holocaust. And uh, other um, members of the Australian Jewry executive and so on also came out and condemned this. And as one person said, these people probably don't even know that their own grandparents fought in a war against the people in those uniforms, which we must remember as well. There is most certainly a link between 
um, Australians and World War Two. Well, it's so, insulting to obviously it's shocking, shockingly um, distressing for anyone who is Jewish, but it's also offensive to anyone who fought with the Allies in World War Two. I mean, there's so many on so many levels. It's worrying. I do refer people to the Jewish Museum here in Melbourne. And what you can learn. by It is just the most incredible place. And also it raises the question, doesn't it, how do we keep this alive in, in the minds of our children? So, for Take example, them to the Jewish Museum. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, we can't all sort of get to Berlin or one of those magnificent, you know, or even go, you, you can now go and visit Auschwitz and so on. It's not always accessible for all of us, but there are ways that we can access this history. For example... Probably two or three times a week I have a discussion with a parent or a grandparent about Diary of Anne Frank or Diary of a Young Girl by Anne Frank. And they want their daughters to read it, daughters in particular, and what age. And sometimes they'll come in and they'll say, how old's your daughter, 10? And I think that's a bit too young. But 12 or 13, yes. And there's obvious reasons why I think 10 is too young. I think they've really got to be able to dissect what the war, what the war is about. And I think it can be quite a terrifying story to a young person. I know. reckon I read it at 10 or 11. Yeah. I, don't, I think that's all right. I reckon um, that's, that's not too young. There are other books that, um, that do remind us and are worth reading. Schindler's Ark by Tom Keneally, which won the Booker Prize back in the 80s, is still a brilliant book. As was the movie made by Steven Spielberg, Schindler's List, and then Night by Ellie Weissel, and one that I all I well, what about love. the boy in the striped well, pajamas? Well, I was going to say that was e- a great book. Even though critics have said over the years improbable that that could ever occur, I think for children and teenagers trying to access the Holocaust and the horror of it and the personal personal story of the Jewish boy on one side of the fence and the German commandant's child son on the other side of the fence and the two become friends and tragic outcome there. Um, and well, more- I th- Corey, I think film and literature have, can, have used this part of history for great dramatic effect and are continuing to do so. I'm, I, yeah, I'm amazed. it works. I, I, don't buy, I don't buy this excuse that people just aren't really aware of how bad it was. I think it's one part of history that we do continue to talk about. And I, and I think it because the stories are so compelling and tragic and just unbelievable. I mean, when, when well, you think it's of Anna Thunder, I mean, there's so many it's, it's authors. Up, it's who, up to us to keep it alive. That's my point. You know, we have to make sure that schools, communities, uh, artists, whether they're visual artists or filmmakers or writers, that we just continue to keep these stories alive. We had Elliot Perlman in the shop last week talking about his new book, but we referred to The Street Sweeper, which came out a few years ago. Brilliant book, um, set in the camps, a Holocaust theme, big, epic, fabulous novel. And he was talking about the extraordinary impact of researching that, you know, s- seven visits, uh, five visits to Auschwitz, seven visits to Poland. You know, it, it just the impact that it has on him. And he then in turn puts that into his pages, well-referenced, well-researched, the truth coming forward, talking to survivors for his book, and we are the beneficiaries of that knowledge. So keep reading, keep seeing is Sophie's choice. Remember when we saw that? Oh, Gosh. That, was, that, was, that was pretty horrendous. And I don't think I even had children then. Now, um, moving on to more history and The Crown, which of course is, you know, have you, how many episodes and are you I've in? had an, another two. I'm trying to just do it very slowly. Caro. <laughs> well, watching well, the, the the two best for me, and I, I am I don't think it's as good as series one and two, but it is beautifully made, and I'm I'm not mad on Helena Bonham Carter. The Queen Mother is all wrong, and Olivia Coleman just 
he's just not the queen for me. But anyway, the episode, um, my favourite episodes are the one focusing on Lord Louis Mountbatten, which was just fascinating part of history I did not know about. And his very scary, um, some very scary meetings that took place and the Queen managed to foil at the last minute while she was gallivanting around the world trying to improve her, improve her racing stable. That, anyway, and there's another great, brilliant episode with Josh O'Connor as Prince Charles. He's great. Princess Anne's great too, um, going to Wales and learning Welsh. But episode three where Prince Philip gives that interview in America, you would have seen that one, where he talks about how the Queen deserves a pay rise and they've had to tighten their belts. And a recent example is when we had to sell a small yacht. Now, how unbelievable that that is shown the same sort of month that Prince Andrew has, 60 years later, shown himself to be... Or 50, what is it? It must be 50 years. So that was in 67. What? Yeah, 50 years later, how completely out of touch he is with modern society when he talks about... Jeffrey Epstein behaving in a manner unbecoming. And and the BBC woman goes, unbecoming? He was importing women for sex slavery. Oh, yes, well, it was terrible. Well, as we know, the ramifications of they call it so a train similar. wreck. They call it a train wreck interview. It's beyond that. It's, it's, a, it's an interview that could, well, it has damaged the monarchy, but really could have ongoing serious ramifications. Now, Prince Andrew has said that he will, uh, he will, uh, connect somehow with the FBI. He's willing to, and and he's been sacked. The and Queen and Prince Charles and Prince William have according, got together yeah, and sacked him. Yeah, and, accor- and, and uh, according to the Times, love to have been a, a fly on the wall in that three-way <laughs> conversation. But according to according to the Times, I think it was on the weekend, they said that Andrew truly believes, Caro, that once he gives evidence and cooperates with the FBI, it'll be business as usual. Meanwhile, on the weekend, Beatrice, Princess Beatrice, his eldest daughter, who's to be married next year. Who had him to her 21st. Epstein, yeah. Mm. And and there goes, I think there goes B's big wedding, dare I say. But she's been in tears um, all weekend, all week, apparently. All love. Um, I just want, you remember last week uh, when Gary was with us, I mentioned Tom Bauer, The Rebel Prince, this book, this fantastic book that I reviewed on the podcast last year. Rebel Prince, The Power, Passion and Defiance of Prince Charles. There are lots of references in this book to Prince Andrew and the fact that the brothers just do not like one another. I was reminded of the fact that in 1996, when Charles's personal life and marriage with Diana, everything was imploding, the tampon story, Camilla, the whole thing, Prince Andrew actually had serious discussions with people about becoming regent until William turned 18, should something happen to the Queen. So instead of child, like he actually, he thinks mm. that he could do the job. Mm. Anyway, this is just a little excerpt. Prince Andrew's behaviour was harming Charles's efforts to win support with the public. To the public, Prince, Charles, Prince Andrew represented the worst of hereditary privilege, damned as a useless across Whitehall while undertaking so-called official trips in the Far East in America. He was chasing women with a protection officer in tow at a cost of between £140,000 and £250,000 per trip, including private jets. Well, Nothing's changed. Nothing, well, no, but, but what amazes me is that he, he would still be so out of touch with modern life that he would give that interview the way Prince Philip did back in 1967 mm. and complain when people have lost their oh, jobs. A, you're right. It's a really good yacht. connection. It's a scary connection, isn't it? Extraordinary. <laughs> and also, ladies, just watching some uh, over your shoulder, Caro, the crawlers on breakfast television, the Queen has of this morning officially cancelled Andrew's 60th birthday celebrations. 
Well, How would you feel if you got an invite on that guest list? You'd be like, oh. I don't think I want to go to that one. Well, of course. But, uh, that, well, well, and, 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 and a lot of the sponsors of his charities have pulled out as well. He's just, uh, just spiralling downward. And yet there was a big argument on the drum or something on the ABC over the weekend and um, about how this has harmed the monarchy. I don't think it's harmed the Queen's reputation. I think so she's, long as she's strong. So long as she's strong with him. Yeah, well, she has sacked mm. him. I mm. mean, or he says he's stepped away, but they've obviously told him to. Um, I don't feel that people are turning to her yet. I think even though he's meant to be her favourite child. Anyway, extraordinary story, extraordinary. Um, equally interesting is, um, well, to me, probably not to most people, but, you know, um, I've been talking for some time about Gillan McLaughlin's tenure at the AFL and the fact that he's always said that he's not going to be there forever. He's not going to be an 11-year CEO or 10-year like Andrew Demetriou was. So, I get the feeling you're um, pushing the wagon for your boy at Richmond. Well, he's not my boy. He's Brendan Gale, the CEO of the Richmond Football Club. And, Corrie, I'm not – anyone you talk to across the AFL, well, most people have felt for some time that Brendan Gale, who did interview for the job last time – and um, was never any chance for the role, as was Brian Cook, the other person who interviewed. The AFL spent several hundred thousand dollars paying a headhunter, and they came up with Brendan Gale and Brian Cook to take on Gillen anyway. Um, but Gillen McLaughlin clearly doesn't see Brendan Gale as necessarily his heir apparent, and he's never um, brought on a successor within his organisation, certainly not successfully. I wrote a column about this in May. One particular smart aleck at the AFL said, oh, well, I don't know if it was all that smart for Brendan Gale to use Caroline Wilson to launch his campaign. It was just a stupid comment and completely wrong. Brendan Gale would have been quite embarrassed by what I wrote. But I'd spoken to so many people across the industry. They all feel that the guy... He's the CEO of the moment, isn't he? Yes, yeah. and, and he's, he's turned Richmond from yeah. financial and football basket case into, at the moment, the powerhouse of the AFL. Correct. He is Huge membership, huge corporate sponsorship. And a, a male champion of change in the true sense of the word, um, stood up and stared down Peggy O'Neill, with Peggy O'Neill, her two challenges that emerged at the end of 2016, has worked really successfully with the game's first woman president, um, his one of his executives has gone on to, to become Kane Little, CEO of Carlton. You talk to anyone at any other club, and they say he is clearly, and he, he's just you know he's, he's got the gravitas, he's got the law degree, mm. he was CEO of the AFL Players Association, blah blah blah. Well, I was on just briefly. I was on a board with him, the AFL Sports Ready Board, about fourteen years ago, thirteen years ago, and our chair at the time was Bill Kelty. And Bill Kelty, my sense around the board table, he was a huge fan of this young emerging he was then head of the players association that's why he was on the board yep and um I, you, you really got the feeling that kelty valued him greatly maybe even mentored him possibly. well i tell you what the afl commission could use bill kelty at the moment because um he was an unbelievably effective commissioner at the moment there's a couple of impressive He's ones a great man bill kelty but there's a couple of just there's a lot of uh, the commission at the moment are, derided by a lot of the clubs and they feel that Richard Goida was, you know, the clear candidate to take over once Linda DeSalle went off and became governor, very sadly became governor of Victoria because she would have been the next chairman and she would have been great, I think. Um, he works very closely with Gillen, is an enormous fan of Gillen McLaughlin and there's a view that he might not necessarily stand up to Gillen McLaughlin. Anyway, I, I reported on Sports Day about a month ago that Xavier Campbell, the Essendon CEO, 
who Gillan McLaughlin sees as one of his successes, even though he's a lot younger and has done a very good job at Essendon, but I don't think yet would be the rival to Brendan Gale. Gillan McLaughlin disagrees. Um, although they denied it when I asked them the AFL, it's now been reported that Xavier Campbell will be coming to work for the AFL in the next few months. He will be the unofficial number two. He is going to be CEO of Marvel Stadium. And so there's the rivalry begins. And if Gillan McLaughlin stands down at the end of next year, which is what we all think, it is going to be fascinating to see what happens with Xavier Campbell, who people at Essendon are a bit miffed with. Certainly some board members. But Xavier Campbell's inside the tent now. He's actually, he will be working Mm. at AFL headquarters and Brendan Gale will not be. But Brendan Gale doesn't need to go and work at the AFL, I don't think. You don't need to be working there to get the job. it gives you an advantage over the coffee to start working the numbers. Well, there is a blatant... In In the canteen. Bring it on. Yeah, how interesting is that? Bring it on. It's going oh, to... I love talking footy and uh, you look, your, your little eyes have lit up there. <laughs> well, it's just, it's just interesting. I, I, I it need, is interesting. I need to sort of talk to Xavier Campbell because he was a bit cross about something I said last week. He disputed that um, in, in any way has let what his AFL ambitions or his relationship with Gillen affect anything he's done at Essendon. But there was a view from some board members that maybe there was some compromise. So we'll see. We'll see. Now, Corrie, you have a crush. I do have a crush, Caro, and my crush of the week is Pete Buttigieg, who is one of the Democratic candidates for the presidency for the 2020 presidential campaign. He's one of 20 of them. The Democrats have a plethora of candidates. But Pete Buttigieg, he's the mayor. He's known as Mayor Pete, not a Washington insider. He's starting to poll really, really well in the two states of Iowa and New Hampshire, which come January have are the first of the um, of the primaries. In particular, what I admire about this young man, and he is in his late thirties, is a most interesting interview he did with one of my favourite podcasts called The Daily by the New York Times, and it's a fantastic slice of American life every morning they do it and the interview that they recorded on the weekend which people can download is an interview with Pete Buttigieg. He discusses everything from (coughs) his ambitions as a young man to want to serve and become a politician. At some stage I think he realised that if he played the game right in the right way and and checked and all the ticked all the boxes he could one day stand as a candidate for the President of the United States. He enrolled in military service. He is a Rhodes Scholar. He is an incredibly thoughtful, brilliant young man. He's an only child of academic parents. He, he describes himself as a, as a nerd. So I think this is a really lovely interview that he gives about his young days. Issue being that in his, at some point at heart, when he was at Harvard and through his twenties, he realised that perhaps he was gay and he denied it. He tried to hold it back because he re, he thought that this would harm any sort of political ambitions or any political career he ever had and at what point he felt he had to come out and be honest to himself and honest to his family. And it is such a moving story of this young man's tussle. He is completely open about it and he now says it's kind of ironic and funny that this one thing that he was terrified of that would kill his political career has actually ended up being one of his really great strengths. There is evidence that he has... um, he, he has raised a lot of funds because he is a homosexual. He is married. Uh, he and his partner have um, a wide group of connected connected people who really support them. He has um, he's won the crowds over. He has a problem with African American voters, but 
you know, maybe he can, in the next few months he can win them over. But I just thought he might this have interview, a problem with Middle America. He might have. He a problem. shouldn't, but he. You know, well, we he's know from he... Middle America. But anyway, I just think I just wanted people to go to the Daily New York Times. It is a fantastic podcast, and and have a listen to this most interesting interview. So he is my crush for his honesty and his commitment to the cause. BSF, Cory. BSF. You've got a book. I have. Christos Schlokas, who wrote The Slap and Barracuda, is back with Damascus. And I think this is possibly, Caro, his most brilliant novel. Wow. This book could end up, this is a big call I know, and I haven't finished it, but it could end up as uh, on the long list of next year's Booker Prize. Um, it, it is profoundly important book. What Christos has done is he's taken the story of St. Paul, or Saul as he was, Saul who um, who was a Jewish Pharisee and was responsible for uh, the persecution of many Christians after the around the time of Christ and the, and the death of Jesus. Uh, but he had an epiphany uh, on the road to Damascus, uh, which we've all heard. He was sort of, um, you know, light went, he fell off his horse and the light went on and it was the son of God saying, you know, I am here. And from that point, he, he decided that he would take the word of Christianity and spread it around the world. He is considered probably the most important of them all. Because not so much at the time was he the most important apostle. In fact, he was not an apostle around the table with Jesus, but he yes, was often a, mistaken. Often for, mistaken. But he was a Pharisee, and he did. Yeah. So is he this was. a modern take so, on it? Or no, is it? no. This is an historical. This is an epic historical fiction. And what he's done is he's talked. He, Christos has looked at the, the how Christianity spread and the writings of St. Paul. See, so that was the important thing because they formed a big part of the New Testament, and that's of course because of him we know. Um, you know, we can track the the rise of Christianity. But this is a very gory, confronting, difficult book to read. The opening chapter is the stoning of a Christian woman. You know, he who cast the first stone, and boy, do they cast stones. It's bloody, it's gory, it's it's really confronting. But I urge those who have the courage to read it. Christos Locus at his finest, and the book is called Damascus. Love it. Oh, well, sound, well the silence of the girls, which I... Um reviewed two weeks yes, ago. you had a that, similar feeling to that. Well, that I, I was still not finished it when I reviewed it and I am now finished. Oh, my Lord. It is quite brutal and it is violent and the violence against women, heavens to Betsy, but a fascinating sort of modern... Well, well, it has to be a modern take. Well, yeah, of course. But Peter Craven, Peter Craven, the eminent reviewer in The Age, just last Saturday said, this is a hellish book full of poignant glimpses through a dark mirror, horrifying, disheartening and often rawly written, but it's the work of a real writer. There you go. Okay, Damascus by yes. Christos Tolkis. What's your movie? Is it one of the British film festivals? No, well, I'm separating those and I'm managing to see other movies as well, which means I'm having a very nice time. Oh, you're a visitor, Les. I went and saw Knives Out. It was a special preview oh, at my local cinema on Saturday it's, late it's, afternoon. It feels like an Agatha Christie. It's a, it's, a, it's a black comedy. It's an Agatha Christie sort of spoof. Um, it's not Hercule Poirot, but Benoit Blanc. A deep south, a deep south um, private detective who is played with great relish by Daniel Craig. And um, Daniel Craig, I think, is about to come out in a new James Bond movie, but he's also just done this one. It's the sort of semi-haunted house, the patriarch who is a crime writer, who is played again with great relish by Christopher Plummer. 
Um, it's got Don Johnson. It's got Tony Collette. It's got a. I'm sorry, Don cast. Johnson from Don Miami Johnson, Vice. He plays uh, the son-in-law. Is he wearing a white linen suit? No, he's 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 aged a bit. But look, it is. They all they all go nuts. It's all a bit of a send up. It's um, it's it's done perfectly, and it, Daniel Craig sort of saves it. It I, I didn't absolutely love it, but I was riveted from go to woe. Um, I didn't pick a couple of the twists. It's got a great cast, and um, the house the house is sort of the star of the film, really along with Christopher Plummer in a lot of flashbacks because it opens, the film opens after he has been murdered. And um, there is a Latin American carer who is the other main character. and um, Suspect number one. Well, yes, no, yes, no, yes. Very interesting what happens with her. But because of that, there's a lot of modern conversations about um, immigration across the border from Latin America, um, a lot of talk about an unnamed president and his attitude to all of that, a lot of political discussion. So, it's, it, look, it's, it's certainly a very enjoyable film. Stephanie Bunbury, I think, wrote in The Age last week. It was the most fun she's had at the movies for over a year. So It sounds like one of those if you've, movies perfect for Boxing Day or perfect for if you've had three Christmas parties in oh, a row, all of and that. on the fourth night, all of you just, that. Oh, I just want something that's easy. All of that, and um, no, no. Look, it, it's it's great. It, it's good. It's good. It's not great. The marriage story is what I'm dying to see, which is one of those ones like the Irishman. You know, they're showing it in only a few select cinemas, and then it's going on to Netflix, and it's sort of about the breakdown of a marriage. And the main characters, are, oh, Scarlett Johansson, anyway, plays um the the wife, and it's all about Broadway versus Hollywood. Anyway, that sounds absolutely brilliant. But you've got a recipe. I do, and it's thanks to your daughter Clementine, actually, that I became aware of this book. She contacted me a couple of weeks ago and said, have you received Alison Roman's Nothing Fancy yet in the bookstore? Alison Roman is an American uh, blogger, Instagrammer, food person. I don't know what her credentials are in the kitchen, but this is a jolly good cookbook. Uh, so I said no to Clem. It hadn't arrived at that stage, oh. but it had. And then I said, oh, Clem, it looks a bit dull. The photographs looked a bit dull. However, I've, I'm, I apologise to Clementine. This book actually is a ripper, and we cooked out of it yesterday at our Ballarat birthday feast. And this is what this is what we cooked. Frizzled chickpeas and onion with feta and oregano. Don't you love the word frizzled and yeah. grizzle? I I've love never frizzled. Heard frizzled. Frizzled with, with food. I know. Well, you frizzle good them up the in the vegos, fry pan. Then. It's very good. Well, the family in Ballarat's decided to go vegetarian, which has thrown us all a curveball for Christmas. All but of anyway, them. <laughs> well, Hattie did hoe into a sausage yesterday when we cooked them up for they're, the other members of the family. They're going for Christmas. Oh, they've, they've, oh, they've, all, they've, all, they've become vegetarian. I kind of overnight, I said to Charlie... What about the Christmas ham? And he said, oh, I might make an exception. I said, you can't make exception. Anyway. Well, they're going to eat fish? Oh, yes. I think they'll still do fish. Oh, so they're, they're pescatarian. Well, I'm not sure whether they're doing that much fish. Anyway, I'll report back on that. So this is what you do. 125 mils of olive oil, one large red or yellow onion, thinly sliced, kosher salt and freshly- What's a yellow onion? Oh, I think that's a brown onion. This is oh. American talk. <laughs> oh. Kosher salt and freshly ground black pepper- two 425-gram tins of chickpeas drained and rinsed, four garlic cloves smashed. There was a lot of garlic in it. Pinch of chilli flakes, four marjoram or oregano sprigs, the leaves picked. Looking at this recipe, I think you could also do watercress too, would be quite nice. Or if you can't even do that, a bit of rocket chopped up. And then 60 grams of Greek 
Bulgarian or French feta, very thinly sliced or crumbled. And what you do is, I'm going to the next part of the screen here, um, heat the olive oil in a large pan over medium-high heat, add the onion and season with salt and pepper. Cook stirring occasionally until the onion has softened, probably five or six minutes. Add the chickpeas, garlic, chili flakes and half the marjoram leaves. Season with salt and pepper and toss to coat in the Oh, in the oily business, she calls it. Continue to cook, shaking them. <laughs> I don't, I'm, not, I'm not mad on this American spirit speak. Um, shake the pan occasionally to ensure nothing is sticking and that the chickpeas are getting equal attention from the oil and the heat until the chickpeas are golden brown and appear fried around the edges and the onion is a deep golden brown. Now, we, Checker and I spent quite a bit of time looking at what was frizzled. Had they frizzled enough? So I think you've just got to go with your gut and really just make sure they look not quite burnt, but almost. And then you take are they tin chickpeas? I should say, yeah, or tin, soaked they're, overnight? They're chick, no, they're tin chickpeas. That's what makes it so easy. Uh, taste a chickpea and make sure it's plenty seasoned, and add salt and pepper to taste if you have to. And pinch pinch of chili flakes, and then you remove from the heat, transfer to a large serving bowl, top with the feta and the remaining marjoram, or as I said, you could do rocket, you know, anything green. It needs a, it needs a kick. You yeah. know, Americans aren't so good in their food presentation. This lacked a little greenery, I thought, in the photograph, which Miss Jane will put on our show notes and Facebook page. Um, and anyway, you just serve that as a side. It was absolutely fabo, fabulous. It sounds beautiful, but I just want to make one comment about good vegetarian dishes. You always have to so overcompensate with olive oil, salt, pepper and chilli, don't you? you? Do. And there's a lot of chickpea. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, well, then you need you need all the salt and pepper and chilli to make Oh, anyway, look. <laughs> to I'm, make it taste. It does sound absolutely beautiful. I got home yesterday and Clem was deep frying tamarillos oh. for her friend, for her little friend Millie. Oh, I think they were tamarillos. I wish that child of yours would bring her out her own cookbook. Oh, they were, and and she seemed to be slicing up yellowfin tuna as well. I don't know what she was making. I sort of missed out. Well, you out were at the that. movies. I missed out. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> Movie marathon. So, Caro, you're grumpy, I think, today. Look, I was. Go- I am. I was going to be grumpy about Brian Hartzer because it is just to me a matter of inter- or not internet national shame that he has not been shamed into standing down from Westpac. I just cannot believe after what Westpac has been exposed of doing and the links to these horrible child sex rings through their international money funds. Uh, it just hor- and I, I know I noticed that Josh Frydenberg said on the weekend it's not over yet, but still he's still in the chair as we speak. Mm. But being grumpy denotes something a bit more light-hearted and I thought that's it's not even worth me. That, well, you can be grumpy about very serious things. Well, I'm grumpy about something else though. Did you know Marie Kondo has opened up her own shop? Marie Kondo, who's told us all for two years to downsize and get rid of things that don't spark joy, she's now got an online shopping thing happening. What's wrong with that? Well, actually, what's she selling? (laughs) All the things she's been telling us for two years to throw out. Candles and little bits of um, little lights and little, you know, bits of soap and all (laughs) that Homewares, homewares, all the things. I feel like we've gone from the sublime to the ridiculous. Marie Kondo has opened up her own eye store, e-store. No, what do they call it? They're e-stores, aren't e-store. they, when they're online? <laughs> you know how she tells you to get rid of all that extra stuff out of your oh, kitchen cupboard? glasses shop. Well, guess what? She's now, do you know how she's justified it? Now that she's got you to get rid of all those things that don't spark joy, she's going to sell you her own things. Marie Kondo, con. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Corrie, 
Six quick questions. Donald Trump Jr. I haven't Jr. seen you fired up like that for well, Don't ages. you find that slightly ironic? Well, yeah, but look, nothing in the world surprises me, really, with people who decide that they're going to turn their mission into a money-making machine. She was already making money by telling us how to downsize. Well, speaking of making money, greedy, ask, ask me my greedy, first question. Greedy. Uh, yeah, well, Donald Trump Jr. released his new book a couple of weeks ago. How's it selling and are you stocking it? Uh, answer to that last part, no, never. You're not um, stocking it. I will not be. It's called Triggered, How the Left Thrives on Hate and Wants to Silence Us. It's not because it's an anti-left thing. Please, I have no political views on this. Or that, you know, well, I do not like Donald Trump, nor particularly his son. But I won't be stocking this book because it just sounds like a, a just a complete barrage of ver- verbal rant by him. What's interesting, Caro, is that they said, um, they being the newspapers, the initial report said this this book was racing off the shelves. It turns out that um, the New York Times has a hardcover non-fiction best-selling list that it releases each month. And if it has a dagger beside it, so it says, you know, um, Donald Trump has sold you know, 500,000 copies of Triggered and has a dagger. That's a warning to people. And what that warning means is that for some peculiar reason, there has been a huge buy, like one particular buy-up of this book. Oh, I see. So it's a... Which suggests it's not you and Jane and I each yeah. buying it. But it's, So where did Sort this... of like a Logie nominee going to a certain news agent and buying out every TV week. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> sort of. Well, Kind of. <laughs> yeah, okay. No, I'll go with that. That's exactly right. So what's happened is that the New York Times have just gone, smell a rat here. What's going on? So they've they've gone and looked a little bit harder at this. And it turns out that the story that was published, which was such a ripper of a story in the New York Times, the Republican National Committee has spent $100,000 on orders for this book. Why do you think they might be doing that? Anyway, I'll just I'll just leave that one with you. My question to you, Caro, it's been 12 months since Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews was re-elected. What has been his greatest achievement? Well, I love these anniversaries because it means that every newspaper and political um, politi- political outlet in TV, you know, radio, does an assessment. Of Is your husband, premier. Brendan, doing one for Channel 7? Uh, not, I think he usually just does an interview, often does a sit-down interview. He gets the exclusive. Him. I haven't asked him about that one, that actually. he's that good at his job. But it, it did make open my eyes to how many things have changed since Daniel Andrews became Premier. He's been Premier for a long time now. And... Um, I would say his greatest achievement. So it wasn't just the achievement over the last twelve months. It was it's over his tenureship. Yeah. Okay. So, but but I would say probably politically his greatest achievement was that landslide win a year ago, um, up against all the anti-publicity, the African gangs, the fear-mongering campaigns, etc. He stared all that down and mm, look um, at it, look at who the opposition leader was and won by an absolutely huge amount. Yeah, we well, didn't have much opposition in Matthew Guy. He wasn't a, a great opposition. Um, but and, and and winning in a landslide with all that with all that major capital works going on, you know, which has been driving people nuts. But you can't say Victoria isn't changing in front of our very eyes. Um, but I reckon assisted dying would be my number one. Mm. I think that has made such a difference. And um, he was the first. Sta- it was the first state to do it. I mean, he's done so many things that have been unpopular in many circles. Safe injecting rooms being the one. The one in Richmond being one. And he's been the first to do it. But I think the euthanasia bill would be my numero uno. Mm. 
I he's agree. also he's also um, embraced and put forward treaty before anyone else as well. So he's pretty progressive, the old Dan. Dan well, the there's man. a lot of progression happening in our nearby area. Way too much construction happening. Oh, it's just a, it's hysterical. I just you just have to plan your route everywhere you go these days. Now, what's your least favourite saying at the moment, Corrie? In the supermarket the other day, the because I just hate doing it myself. I still get confused with the machines, so I go to the. Um, Check out. check out. I was going to say check out chick, but that's just so wrong. And it was a gentleman. And as he's putting my items in my bag, he says, have a good one. Oh, yeah. And I just often wonder, have a good one what? <laughs> have a good what? I reckon, exactly. I think that's a little bit picky. I, I reckon reaching out is more annoying than that or oh, how's no, this, your day? Oh, way. oh, look, I could mention 300. But have a good one. Yeah. So what should, bit, he, should he say, have a good day? Have a, have a good day, but have a good one. Look. What visit to the toilet, or you know? And were you buying? <laughs> what? Were you buying food porn at the time? <laughs> I love, I love that you said that last week because I didn't want to seem like a sycophant because I'd already told you that I thought you were a great journalist. <laughs> we, we agreeing with Gary Linnell. I didn't want to puff you up, puff you up too much, but I agree with that porn thing that you said last week. Oh, it drives me bonkers. It's being overused, fashion porn, food porn. I know. Caro, have you forgiven David Warner? No. You're talking about David Warner, the opening batsman for Australia? I would be. I think David Warner has had an unbelievable opening to this test series and he had a great innings at the at Gabba. He did win me back a small amount over in England when um, all the Barmy Army were heckling him and abusing him and having a go at him and he put his hand in his two pockets and lifted out the two pockets and put his hands up like to show there was no sandpaper in there and turned it into a joke. Far better than employing that PR woman, Roxy Ischenko, and doing that ridiculous press conference where he didn't answer any questions. Batting brilliantly as he has, and he didn't have a good test series over in, in England, but he's had a great start here. He seems to be back on board with Steve Smith and their relationship seems to have been healed. But I'm just waiting for a little bit longer. It takes me a bit longer to forgive than, you know, a a double, a century or a double century doesn't just, you know, change everything. (laughs) I don't know. This question you've given me, I didn't, wasn't aware it was an ongoing thing, but how is the photo with Father Christmas? How is that project going? I wasn't aware there was a project. Well, it's been a project that's been going on since my kids were little and everyone refused to have their photos taken with that scary man. Right, so that was always really annoying. Oh, so come secretly, around again. Secretly, I wanted to be in the photo with the scary man, and I remember Will, <laughs> Will being terrified because I'd filled them with stories of, and at night time he comes down the chimney into the house and leaves presents, and Will was just like, "I'm not going to bed on Christmas Eve on my own." Yeah, <laughs> when yeah. he was about five, looking back, I, it is a bit scary. Pretty scary. Well, probably a bit inappropriate these days too. Anyway, so we we went to the Ballarat Spring Market we mentioned before. And we're walking around and Francesca and Willow were off looking at little dresses for babies or something and Hats and I stumbled upon the Father Christmas uh, tent where you could have your photo taken with Father Christmas. I thought, now's my chance. Now is the opportunity. Work on the grandchildren. And um, I said, Hattie, do you want to meet Father Christmas? And this very determined shaking of the head, no. Mm. And she stood there watching the other children being photographed. And so after about 10 minutes, I said, would you like to have your photograph now? Mops will come with you, thinking, here's my close-up. No, Mops, no, no. She's <laughs> scared of him too. Oh. The look of terror in the face, like, wow. don't make me do that. Oh, it's really hard, isn't it? I don't know how we go. We can't, we. I don't know how parents get their kids to do it. 
Well, my I've kids had all no did success. It. Oh, my kids all loved it. Or oh, maybe your kids are a bit more well, showy off well, than mine. No, I mean, well, I don't know. We never. Well, I've certainly got a lovely one of Clem with Father Christmas in a nice frock. I think Rose did it, and Ned. I can't remember. But gee, well, so in other words, the project's not going well at no. all. <laughs> Abject fail. I'm sorry to hear about that. The hope of the side's Willow next year. I'll have to try her. Well, it sounds like the market was a great success. Um, oh, I've got a GLT. Yes, what is it? This is a great GLT. I picked it up this morning from the gym girls, from Laurie Chartres, the person who gave us that brilliant Christmas nuts recipe that we might have to put around again this year at the Christmas breakup at Bell's Hotel on the 10th of December. <laughs> plug, plug. You know how when you're doing um, croutons for a Caesar salad or you're doing, um, you know, you slice um, a, a big baguette to make, you know how you do a lot of lovely, you do that beautiful spinach dippy thing you put on top of, what are they called when you slice? It'd be a crostini or crosti- a bruschetta. Bruschetta, whichever. yeah. You know how you put them in the oven, they're never even, you can paint them with olive oil or spray them with olive oil or do them on baking paper. What do you mean they're never even? Well, they, they often burn or they go too crunchy and they, they, they break your teeth. you them, Carrie. You can't just put them in the oven and... Corrie, the Breville sandwich maker. Well, I don't have one. You're kidding. No. You've got to get one. No, I You've don't. You've got grandchildren. You definitely no. need one with grandchildren. Well, I love the, my Breville. In fact, I gave Brendan a new Breville so sandwich maker. how many pieces maker. of bruschetta can you fit in at one time? Well, you, you slice, them on hours. The, slice them on the diagonal, spray them with a bit of olive oil. You don't have to, but it, they taste better. Rub them with a bit of garlic, pa- you know, paint them with a bit of just cut a garlic in half mm. and rub it on the bread. They come out absolutely perfect. But you'd only be able to do about six or eight at a time. Yeah, but it's pretty quick. It's quicker than doing them all in the oven, oh. and they are absolutely perfect. You can do it for croutons, for your Caesar salad. But I've got to go and spend $100 on a Breville sandwich oh, I, maker I, to achieve it. I'm sitting here in shock that you don't already oh, have well, one. Well, we're not all as wealthy as you I go, Oh, please, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> I wouldn't know That's where to fit it in the statement. kitchen. There are so many appliances Well, I bought a bench. giant one at um, oh that brilliant shop in Sydney, uh, Pete's of Kensington, last year. I bought one for Brendan. I, in fact, I bought it for Brendan for Christmas. Bought oh, it. He Bought would have, it. He would have been excited about that. He was. He loves his Breville sandwich maker. They're always handy late at night when guests stay too long and you chuck in a few cheese toasties. But what he also uses it for is lardons. Or, you know, when you chop up bacon or ham or the lard on things, you want to do in a beef, a beef um, yeah. burgundy yeah, or do, something. And you do want them to be quite crisp. She reckons you do. And, and then Jules, our other gym friend, chimed in and said – that old piece of quiche or frittata, you know, you put it back in the oven or the microwave. Microwave, it comes out soggy. Oven, it comes out but dry. you've got to spend 15 minutes cleaning your Breville sandwich maker. You layer a layer of baking, glad bake on the bottom, put the piece of leftover quiche in, a layer over the top. Oh, stop. Close it. It comes out crispy, I hate to say it, moist and not dried up. Jane, why are you nodding your head for Why sandwich are you agreeing maker? with her? She's mad. I've been known to do everything from cook eggs to actually pieces of salmon in a Breville sandwich I've maker. I've done salmon. I've done so salmon. So easy. Great for oh, camping. you're all mad. <laughs> Corrie, everyone will be listening to this and you know you can get the and special what, going, ones. we're with Corrie. No, they won't. We'd you know like the a one, show of hands, please. You know the ones with the lines, like the grill ones? Yeah, yeah. So you do the, imagine the crostini in them. So they come well, out like right. the bean. Well, that's right. I do need something where I can have the grill pattern. I do need something. Well, the, I'm I, not buying a sandwich maker. I Family, I don't want it for Christmas. They're absolutely perfect Caro, for back to Caro, back to um, plugging the Christmas podcast, please. Yeah, well, as we've said, it's on, on December the 10th. We've got a lot of special guests. 
there's Car- food, Caro's there's going drink. to be singing Kumbaya. There's food, there's drink. Um, the rooftop at Bill's in South Melbourne is where it's at. Jane, can we get you back with your guitar? Do you reckon you could do a... Possibly. Sing Jane. Don't the messenger again. <laughs> Jane, we're on from 6.30pm until 8.30pm, Tuesday, December the 10th. Uh, email Tara. That's how you book via events at crocmedia.com or call her on 03 8825 Details in our show notes. Please listen to our podcast. We love bringing more friends into the circle and the circle, as we say, Corrie, always room for one more. Tell your friends and family to sub- subscribe to us. Send your feedback, comments, tips and suggestions to the Don't Shoot the Messenger Facebook page. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter using the handle at Don't Shoot Pod. And you can email us. We got some lovely emails this week, as I read out earlier. Feedback at dontshootpod.com.au. Thank you, Corrie. Thank you, Jane. Corrie, don't shoot the messenger, Carol.